0: questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie Anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have, I think, 10 questions? Nine. Nine. Um, And if any of you are new, welcome. I Get your questions from the community tab of my YouTube channel where my podcasts are held. Does that make sense? Go to youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter. And on the community tab on Sunday mornings, I ask you for your questions and you all have been so gracious. We get hundreds of questions a week. It's been really, really cool. And I realize, um, I know we made a fun graphic to go at the beginning, but I forgot on our 100th episode to say... Congratulations to our community on 100 episodes. I just, you know me, I didn't make a note of it and therefore I completely forgot. But we have 100 episodes. This is a episode 102. It's pretty impressive. I'm pretty proud of us. So, anyways, I wanted to thank each and every one of you for sharing this podcast, for tuning in over, I mean, it's been over a year now. We're going into a year and a half. It's just been wonderful and I'm really enjoying it and I hope you are too. Okay, now let's get into those questions. Now, the first question says, hey, Katie, can you talk about the fear of abandonment versus fear of rejection and how they differ? Good question. It says, as a kid, I was left out a lot. I felt excluded and like I didn't belong. I still feel the effects of those uh, social rejections to the point that now as an adult, I struggle to let people in and keep anyone I'm close with at an arm's length so that they can't judge or reject me and then leave. Would this be more fear of abandonment or rejection or a mixture of both? And how can I start to overcome this and let people in again? There was uh, just, I think it's just one comment. It says, sorry if this isn't related enough, but could you also talk about how to work Out if you have fear of abandonment or fear of people dying because that's related to your trauma? Oh, interesting question. If that makes sense. I fear people will die, which could be a trauma. Someone nearly died. Or could it be fear of abandonment in a different way? Like, I don't want them to die because they'll leave me alone. Sorry, this is such a mess and hope it makes sense. Oh, yes, we're going to dive into all this. So fear of abandonment. Somebody left a comment on this that was, you guys, you have such insight. So you're so knowledgeable. It was almost exactly what I was thinking and what I'm going to say here. And that is, fear of rejection is an initial thing. Someone doesn't like us, they reject us, right? It happens very early on in relationships, if not like before the relationship even happens. Do you see what I'm saying? Fear of abandonment is that we let someone in, they get to know us, we get to know them, we become somewhat you know, used to having them around or attached to them in some fashion. And that attachment and that uh, the fact that we've let them in leads to that fear of abandonment that then they would leave us later. So rejection happens initially, it can be some, it's like people aren't going to like me that don't know me. Fear of abandonment is someone knows me, and I know them, and I've let them in, I've been vulnerable, maybe, or I'm dependent upon them, I'm enmeshed with them. And that fear of abandonment, they're going to leave me. So that's the difference. Rejection means it was never really part of it. They started to get to know me and didn't like me, I feel rejected. Abandonment is, they liked me, I thought, I let them in and then they, then they left. So it's like a later stage relationship issue, if I guess that's the best way I can put it. So that's the difference. Now, um, when you were left out as a kid and felt excluded like you didn't belong, I think that that would, to me, what you're struggling with is, uh, pot- I mean, potentially fear of rejection, because I think it has to do with your confidence level and what's kind of come up for you as a result of you know, feeling excluded and like you didn't belong. I think you probably have a lot of firmly held beliefs, false beliefs, about not being good enough, no one ever liking you, not being lovable maybe, or um, yeah, maybe just like you're never going to belong. Sometimes when we have these experiences as a child and they're kind of like repeated, we can slowly start to believe that that's a fact, right? That like, I know that kids are assholes and I've been bullied, but I believe part of what they did and what they've said to me. And I've like internalized that and accepted it. And now that's what you're struggling with, right? So it's almost like we had these experiences that we can't control because people are assholes. But instead of having other experiences later on in life, where we've been able to like disprove those ones, we haven't, we've kept people at arm's length. And without realizing it, because we were doing that to protect ourselves, we've actually prevented ourselves from having any experiences to help us move past it, to prove to our brain that we are in fact someone people want to be around. And there are people in this world who will like us and want to spend time with us. And so I think in the case of this question, that would be fear of abandonment to me, because I don't hear anything about you saying that you're afraid you're going to let them in and then they're going to leave you, or you're afraid that you'll become so dependent upon them and their support that then what if they're not there? Like that's more of the abandonment stuff that I hear with my patients who struggle with that is like the the concern about needing someone and them not being there. For you, it's more like I don't want to be judged or rejected, right? So it's that rejection part. Um, And so how you overcome it is to essentially, and this is going to be horrible and uncomfortable, but it will get better, is we're going to have to do what I would call like a form of exposure therapy where we start. Well, actually, let's take one step back. Let's start here. Making a list of things. I've talked about this in other podcasts. Making a list of the things that you're comfortable having people know about you. Now, this can be anything from, you know, like first one or two times that we meet. You can talk about your job, right? Where you're from, things that you like to do. If you have hobbies, food you like and don't like. Like Think of the things that we talk about in those first couple of hangouts, right? then what would you like be okay with them knowing as you get to know them better right like when you start to feel like it's okay to say like yeah today was kind of a bad day oh why well this happened right we kind of let people in a little bit talking about maybe some tough times we had in childhood like yeah i was bullied in school and it was really hard you know i'm still trying to fight past it you know When would we want to share that? And then what are the deep, dark, like things that we only share with our closest, closest, closest friends? So kind of breaking it into like maybe three, four layers. So that we know when we do this next step, this exposure therapy, we kind of can work our way through it. And so just keeping track of like how many times we hang out with someone and how much do we need them to share with us in order for us to can you continue to share, like just take stock of that. Think about it and be reasonable. Don't let this worry and this fear of rejection make you say, like, well, it'll never be safe. And if if they don't share, they had a shitty day. I can't share, I had a shitty day, you know? But just think about it, take some time. What are these layers? What are the levels as we let people in? And then we're going to have to meet people and be out in the world and put ourselves in positions where sure, we could be rejected. Or we could just have like a lovely, lighthearted conversation and move on. And yes, it could turn into a friendship or relationship, or it could just be like, oh, that was a nice person. But, you know, and then on to the next thing, like I can't tell you how many different events before COVID I would go to where I'd meet plenty of lovely people. But out of an entire, let's say, VidCon weekend, like four full days of seeing people I know and don't know, maybe I come out of it with one new person that I'm going to keep in touch with, maybe. That's okay. You can meet people and get along fine, but not try not want to cultivate that relationship. And I think it's in that practice of meeting people, talking, sharing little by little, having a repeat on people that you think are very interesting and fun and you enjoyed at least, or maybe didn't feel you're like your worst self in that moment. We're just looking for that because it's really that slow, gradual get to know people essentially exposing ourselves to the potential rejection. But what that's actually going to do, just spoilers, is that if we take our time with it, if we make sure we see people, you know, every week or two or so, talk to them, connect with them, we're going to find out that we are lovable. We are likable. People want to spend time with us. You know, we just had some jerk kids that we grew up with who told us different, but what do they know? Nothing. Turns out nothing. And so that's really how we work through it. Yes, I know it sucks. Yes, I know it's slow. But trust me when I tell you that the cool thing about exposure therapy is that once we do it, we don't have to go back and redo it most of the time. Sometimes you have to have like a booster session or two. But if we thoroughly work ourselves like through that exposing ourselves to the potentially scary thing, calming ourselves down, doing that, will give us a good result and it will sustain which i think is awesome okay now there's a the comment on this is a little bit different but somewhat similar where they're talking about fear of abandonment or fear of people dying so i guess the way to just to like differentiate between these two is if you because it sounds like it sounds like the trauma is that someone like you said someone almost died in your in your life it was traumatizing super super scary right and if you don't want to be around people because you're afraid they're going to leave you through death, that, all it is is teasing it out. Is it that we're afraid someone's going to leave us because we're not good enough? Because that's actually where fear of abandonment comes from. Is like I'm, I'm not good enough, or I'm unlovable is a very, very common like deep belief. That's we we fear people are going to leave us. Death is different. Are we just like anxious and think that something could happen to someone? You're just going to have to be more aware or draw your attention to your thought process around it. Because in that thought process, you will be able to determine whether it was based on death or ab- or attachment slash abandonment, if that makes sense. Okay. I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, my friend and I both were suicidal in the past, but we were suicidal in completely opposite ways. Interesting. Oh, and I thought it was interesting. Me too. For her, suicide was a last resort, an escape from painful feelings, very common. Feeling hopeless, like things won't ever get better. She wanted to live, but living was just too painful. Her suicidal ideation was impulsive and in the moment, hitting rock bottom and feeling like you can't do this anymore. Okay, so that's one way. But for me, I wasn't in any pain. I just had no desire to live. I didn't want to spend the majority of my entire life going to school or working. You have to work hard and build the life you want, and I just didn't want to. My suicidal ideation was long thought out, falling asleep every night perfecting my plan. I'd write suicide notes and imagine my funeral. The thought of dying was thrilling and peaceful to me. And I guess I don't really have a question. I just wanted to know if you could talk about this, like the different mindsets in suicidal people. There are many ways that people can be suicidal, and it's not just always of pain and suffering, and maybe not always from depression. Yes, this is a great topic to discuss because the thing that we often connect is depression and suicide yes, they do occur together sometimes, but not always. Meaning suicidal thoughts can happen without depression happening first, or they can happen as a result of ongoing depressive symptoms. Does that make sense? It's like you don't have to have one to have the other. Suicidal thoughts can kind of hang on their own. And I would argue, and I think someone left a comment to this effect too, that these two ways of being suicidal are probably the most common slash, not like the only reason, but I think if we really drilled down any of us who've ever felt suicidal came from one of these places, either what I would call the painful position, meaning the depression is so bad and so unbearable, and my thoughts are so unbearable that I just feel hopeless, right? And maybe, I've been traumatized in the past, I'm trying to work on, I get traumatized again, and it can just feel like I'm never going to be able to get out of it, and we can be hopeless in that way, right? I hear that a lot from a lot of you, and I've heard it a lot from my patients. And then the other is almost this like apathy for life, meaning it's it's like I don't enjoy anything, and I guess we could say that that is maybe depression-based too. It's kind of, I don't know, I guess it could be argued that that like, I just don't even want to do it is... A really intensive form or more pervasive form of what we would call um, why did I why am I blanking on it it's uh, anhedonia I almost want to say akathisia and I was like no that's a side effect Katie of a medication <laughs> my brain interesting right so the anhedonia where you just don't have interest in anything and kind of sounds like that and so it could be argued that way or you could just argue that it's like failure to thrive like the, uh, they use failure to thrive as a way to describe children who are maybe born prematurely or have some issues and just do not survive. They don't make it because they don't, It's they just don't have the energy or the ability, right? But I'd, I've used it and I've heard it used when it comes to mental illness, when we just don't have the oomph to work through it. It's like we're kind of apathetic. Just I'm too, uh, just too tired to even care, right? And so I think that that again, I'm just, I'm thinking it out with you. I'm talking it out with you that I think it could come from both of those places. Maybe it is depression and we just don't think of it that way because we don't always talk about anhedonia or the the lack of interest all the time and it it revealing itself in this way, but I could see that. Or it could just be this like failure to thrive, this lack of desire to live. It's a very kind of passive. I would call that, even though I know probably have a plan and stuff like that, but I would call it more of a passive suicidal plan, meaning it's It's not like pain ridden and and impulsive. It's more like I think this is just what's going to happen, right? And so, anyways, I think those are both very common. I think those are probably the two that I hear the most. If there are others, feel free to leave them in the comments. If I'm missing something or forgetting something, you know me. I'm always uh, willing to learn from each and every one of you. And so, I think. I think that's really all I have to say is in regards to it, I think sometimes it comes out of hopelessness and sometimes it comes out of like apathy and both are just as serious, both require, you know, help. I hope that both, it says both of you were suicidal. So I hope that you're both doing better and you got some support. The thing that I want to just say to anybody out there who is struggling with suicidal thoughts and thinking either I just don't even have the will to live or I'm in so much pain. I just can't even do this anymore wherever your suicidal thoughts come from, please reach out for professional help. And the reason I say that is because your suicidal thoughts or your depression are completely snuffing out any hope for the future, any positive thoughts, even just the smallest, like I got a good night's sleep last night, like any of those things, or I don't have a headache today, amazing, right? Small positives in your life are being snuffed out by that. And there are so many ways that we can make it better. Whether that's through medication, whether that's through behavioral changes, like I swear to God, if you can just get some sun on your face today and take a shower, eat a full meal, like a real meal with like protein, uh, f- fruit or veggies and a carbohydrate, like if you can do that, I swear to God, you're going to feel so much better. Also drinking water. like There are so many smaller things that I would encourage you to do along with reaching out and seeing a professional because it can and will get better. I know it tells you that that's not possible and that you're in this black hole. And I know if you're really suffering, you're like, Katie, what the fuck do you know? Don't try to tell me how to feel better. I'm not trying to tell you how to feel better. I'm just telling you that there is hope and that it can get better. And sometimes we just need a little push in the right direction. And if I can be that little push for you, I'm happy to do it. So maybe just hop in. the shower do a full body shakeout order a meal or go have some food and see if you can make an appointment to see someone because it does get better okay now there was a comment on this and it said my question is why do people assume that only that the only Oh, okay, I see. So my question is, why do people assume that only with the fact that you ask a person if you're suicidal, then the suicidal person will all of a sudden open up and tell you, yes, I am. I don't think we assume people will open up and tell us, how about if this person doesn't say anything or denies it because he or she wants to go through with it? it? Happens all the time. No matter what, even if there are no depression or mental illness present, how about that person who's really determined to end her or her life? I'm not saying it's wrong to ask a person if they're thinking to, about ending it all, but there must be people like that out there. What are your thoughts? I wonder about this a lot. Thanks. Um, it's very common for people to not want to open up. Now, as a therapist, I, I always ask. I ask from the beginning, from my intake, and I ask periodically throughout, especially if I know there are suicidal thoughts. But a lot of times I have patients forever. I'll see them for years. They're like, nope, never been suicidal. Nope, that's just not part of, you know, my profile essentially. Um, But I still ask every so often, you know, had any suicidal thoughts. As a therapist, it's important that we do check-ins because you just don't know what sometimes what's going on beneath the surface, right? And yes, some people lie. No, I'm not. And because they want to go through with it. I've had patients, you know, tell me about instances like that in the past. I haven't, thank God, knock on wood, I haven't had it happen to me with my patients where they, you know, lied and then attempted to take their life. Thank God, because it's scary. And I, you know, I want, I want to keep my patients safe. And I want to be there for them. And for them, if they're not letting me do that, that's, that's a scary place for me and for them. Um, So anyway, uh, the reason that it's important that we ask is because sometimes, and I find this is more common, more often than not, sometimes people do want to tell you. And I think a lot of the reason, and not to not to pat myself on the back, but I talk to my patients about it in what I hope is not a scary way just to let them know why I'm asking and why it's okay for them to tell me. And I'll say to them, like, it doesn't mean I'm going to hospitalize you. Hospital I see as a last resort. I may do text check-ins on you during the week. And I may ask you to call me or email me or something throughout between our sessions. We might have to do an extra session. You know, I walk them through what what my protocol is for keeping them safe. And then even if this, I tell them, even if they don't have suicide thoughts, I tell them about this, and then when I ask I'm hoping that because of the relationship and my candor and sharing my process and hopefully their trust in me because of our the relationship we're building that if there is any suicidal thoughts they're going to tell me because of the relationship and because of what I've you know cultivated with them and that's just my hope. But if people really want to do it there's nothing we can do to stop them. But you know I'm at least going to check in. So those are those are my thoughts on that. Okay. Let's move on to question number 3. Another great question. You always have such great questions, everybody. Thank you for sending these in. This one says, why do I feel so empty when sharing traumatic stories with my therapist? Hmm, Good question. I just can't access those emotions and it makes me wonder if they're even there. It also makes me question the validity of the stories and if they actually affected me. In a strange way, I wish I could be like the people who actually feel something and can't control their tears. I want to be able to feel, but just can't is there a way to change this? Thanks, Katie. And somebody said, I can definitely relate to this as well. I don't have a lot of memories from growing up, but I do have certain negative memories that constantly replay in my mind on a daily basis. But there is no emotion attached. I'm wondering if maybe it could be similar to OCD or anxiety, or maybe some sort of uh, or re-experiencing or emotionless flashback, if that exists. Um, Okay. There's another comment on this, but I want to jump into this first, and then we'll work our way through. We can feel empty when we're sharing traumatic stories because it's a defense mechanism, and a lot of people commented on this too and shared their thoughts and experiences with this, so thank you so much for that. You, you, Our community is just fucking amazing. So anyway, when when something is emotionally charged to the point where it's traumatic, right, it's overwhelming to our system, we might even have some what we call maladaptive coping skills, meaning they're not helpful like mal meaning kind of bad adaptive coping skills so like they're not the healthiest but we do them because that's the only thing we know what to do these can be things like uh, using your eating disorder or self-injury this could even be things like getting super defensive and stonewalling having black and white thinking right we can have a lot of these patterns of behavior that aren't helpful in like healthy actually but they're helpful in the moment to like keep us going forward does that make sense it's like short-term hey got us through, we survived. Kudos. Now, please stop, right? And so that's what's happening here. This disconnection from the traumatic experience or this, an emotional disconnection is what I should say, has left you being extremely logical, that you want to talk about something without any emotion and you can get through it. You might even be able to, I had a patient in the past and many of you told me you've done this too. You can just like rattle through all of the traumatic experiences even in crazy amounts of detail but you're so disconnected that doing that process with your therapist isn't making things get better right? it's not bringing you any closer to like what i would call um, any kind of relief or recovery from it it's just like uh, i don't know it's almost just like we're going through the motions you know and so i think that distance has been very helpful and been been self-preserve uh self-preservation i guess And now it's in the way. And it's no longer self-preserving. It's now like drowning you, right? Because we are so disconnected. We're not getting through it. And then we continue to feel traumatized and suffer from symptoms of PTSD, which are super uncomfortable. And so your stories are valid. It's very common to be disconnected. It, It was overwhelming. Why would we want to be connected? We had no tools to process it. Why would we allow ourselves to feel it? It was too much. Even before we felt it, we're like, this is too much. When the trauma happened, our brain might've pulled the ripcord and caused us to dissociate or have a panic attack just to pull us out of the present, right? And so you pat yourself on the back. Thank you, brain and body for getting me through and for disconnecting me emotionally so that I could continue. Now I need to let those emotions come back. And doing it little by little with your therapist, the best way I can encourage you to do it is it's going to be homework, mostly at home. And the reason for that is because there's just not enough time in a session to elicit emotion in a healthy healing way right off the bat. Usually we're going to have to maybe watch a movie or a TV show or listen to some music to kind of get ourselves primed to maybe cry or to feel something. Um, We might have to use our feelings wheel to try to identify one emotion a day, doing that for a week or two, then moving into two emotions a day and building from there little by little. Because if we're so disconnected, we can't just all of a sudden feel it, right? The disconnection didn't happen like that. And so the feeling won't happen like that. We have to get back in touch with who we are. A lot of, um, I've been reading a, a lot about somatic experiencing. And one of the first things they have you do is just try to get back into your body. I know a lot of you just cringed, but they he talks, uh, Dr. Peter Levine, the creator of somatic experience and talks about being in the shower and letting the water hit you on your body and saying like, this is my shoulder, this is my arm. As you feel the warm water hit that part of your body, or you can tap it or squeeze that part. Or when you put your lotion on out of the shower, you can do that too. That's my foot and my calf, right? Getting back into our bodies and into our emotions takes some time. It takes a little coercion, a little practice, right? Um, As we even put the words to them. But you can get it back. And you sharing this without any emotional connection or charge is very normal. It's protective. And we just have to prove to ourselves that it's okay to not be that protective anymore. And it takes time. But let your therapist know about this um, so they can help you move through it because it does get better. Okay. Now, the person that was talking about it is it OCD or anxiety right because they said I don't have a lot of memories from growing up but I do have certain negative memories that constantly replay and in my mind on the daily basis those are traumatic memories it could be flashbacks it sounds like it's it's potentially flashbacks um and it says it's OCD or anxiety or maybe some sort of re-experiencing an emotionless flashback. I think it is like that because flashbacks don't have to have emotions attached to them. Flashbacks just have to make us feel like we're kind of back in that scenario or we're, fl- we're flashing back to something that happened and we're watching it like it's happening right now, right? Some of my patients say it feels like they're right back in it and it's happening to them all over. Other people say that their flashbacks feel like them watching a movie of what took place or flipping through a photo book of what happened. So know that however you experience it, even though yours is emotional. It's still a flashback. Um, And then for some context, as I have relational trauma and I'm working on noticing my emotions in my body before I can do EMDR, check out Somatic Experiencing. Check out Dr. Peter Levine's book. I think it's called, is it Healing the Dragon? Let me, or not the dragon, the tiger. Hold on. Somatic Experiencing. book. It's Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma. It's very good. Some of it's a little clinical, meaning like it's made more for clinicians such as myself, but there's a lot of exercises in there that I think are great. And if you are subscribed to my main channel, know that there will be videos coming out about that soon. Okay. Now, another person says, yes, me too. Thinking about it really bothers me. And when I go to tell my therapist about it, I'm sure I'm going to break down and cry. But then I just recall it like a neutral series of events in a very factual way. This led me to feel that I wasn't really traumatized because I could talk about it without feeling anything that's the lie that trauma tells us first of all it it always tells us minimize right it's not that big of a deal we invalidate you know maybe it wasn't that bad i'm making it into more than it was blah 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 then we can go into a shame spiral being not being traumatized doesn't mean we can talk about a shitty event and not feel anything overcoming a trauma means being able to talk about it and acknowledge what how bad it was and be like yeah oh Yeah, that was was really painful. It was really hard, but I'm okay today. That's it. It's not not feeling anything. It's feeling, but knowing that it's in the past and it's okay. And the feelings of it don't impair our ability to function, right? Just because I've moved past something that's happened doesn't mean I can't still tap into the fact that it sucked. Like I could even apply this to like my dad passing away. And I know we're talking PTSD and talking grief, but hey, death in the family can be traumatizing. So let's say I'm talking about that, and if you caught me like a month, within a month or two of when my dad passed away, I couldn't even tell you that it happened. It was like, oh, I'd, uh, mm, I'd break down. There was no way. I was so close to crying like all the time. But then as time went on and, you know, I, I worked on myself. I was in therapy. I was trying to process the, the grief and the loss and just the shock of it all. I got to a point where i can like now where i can look back and say yeah i can even remember what that pain was like you guys i can still feel it if i really want to tap into it I, i remember but i also am okay talking about it i can get through it and it doesn't impair my ability to function i don't just break up down in tears like i did for really like for a while there in the middle of my day and that's like trauma work it's not like we're going to forget that the trauma happened. It's that we're able to talk through it. We can acknowledge the feelings that were there. We remember what it felt like, but we don't feel it in that strong of a way now. Okay. I hope, I know I went on a rabble, down a rabbit hole there, but like, it's not fe- that we're not feeling anything. Okay. Um, and then the person says, you know, it led them to thinking that they weren't really traumatized. Right. But on the other hand, I do experience intense triggers. Is this a defense mechanism or is there Any case in which being able to talk about it could just mean that it wasn't traumatic and we've healed from it. Thank you. I hope that that what I just said kind of answers that for you. But I think it's a defense mechanism. I think we're, you know, shutting it down in a way to protect ourselves from the emotions. And so, yeah. Okay. I think I answered that. Let's move on to question number four. Says, hi, Katie. Are therapists supposed to hide their emotions in response to a story shared? Hmm. As in, remain calm, soothing, or neutral. Recently, I shared with my sister how my therapist shows her anger in session as a response to stories I shared. She told me that she thought that they weren't supposed to and that it would be uncomfortable for her. It's not too big of an issue for me because when I find that it gets too much, I'm able to voice it out. But my therapist said that sometimes she reacts strongly because she wants to show me that certain things aren't okay. So, is this a way for her to teach me things or is it simply inappropriate? It's a mix. Now, we, we are in some, well, okay, let's, not to get too nerdy, but if you get into the history of psychotherapy and go into like Freud, who they think is like, you know, the grandfather of psychotherapy or psychology as a whole, right? All of his research and stuff was wrong. I don't know if anybody knows that, but all of Freud's research has been proven to be false. So just keep that in mind. But it was a good place to start. And one of the things that he would do was, uh, I forget that it's like and psychoan- I think he did psychoanalysis. I think he's the father of psychoanalysis. Anyway, it doesn't matter because psychoanalysis isn't really utilized fully anymore because it's really, 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 really long term, like years and years, and it's super expensive and time consuming. It's not, and it doesn't render very good results. So, long story short, one of the things that they taught people back in the day, in like let's say the fifties, I think I'd have to look in my notes of when psychoanalysis was so popular. It's not important; nobody cares. But One of the things we were supposed to do as therapists is you were supposed to not, you're supposed to be a blank slate, meaning you don't show any emotion, any body language that would indicate you're feeling one way or another, like not clenching your fists or even making your jaw tight. You're supposed to be a blank slate so that your patient feels free to go through whatever range of emotions they have and experience it however they need to without you putting your stuff into the room, if that makes sense. Now, as things have moved forward and we go into kind of more recent research and more, uh, I don't know, just newer forms of therapy, right? Because most therapists don't just do one form of therapy. We pick and choose from different forms. You're going to get a variety. And here's why. Newer therapies are, uh, I mean, not newer, but just like past Freud in general, there are a lot of therapies that utilize the therapeutic relationship in a way to help patients move forward. Now, that could mean that I share some stuff about myself doing what we call, you know, therapeutic disclosures, where I share about my own life, like I shared with you about my dad passing away and my own process. I might share that as a way to not only build our relationship, but also to help you know that I, in some way, have had a similar experience and to kind of validate and help maybe you acknowledge some parts of what you're going through. It's used as a therapy tool. Long story short. So there's that. Some therapists do a lot of role play and things like they'll have you put, uh, do the empty chair technique where you put like someone in your family in the empty chair and you talk to them. And this can be a way to like connect with those who've passed away. It could also be a way to maybe finally tell your narcissistic father what you really think about him, right? We could be used in a lot of different ways. And so we'll use different techniques as ways to help you understand what emotions are okay uh, express those emotions healthfully in a safe environment and i could see and i say all of that all that whole preamble to let you know that yes some therapists are going to express emotion for you in session so that you know that it's okay just like your therapist is saying she says she's doing it so that you um you're uh she reacts strongly because she wants to show you certain things aren't okay yeah like how that person treated you isn't okay i personally do respond that way with my patients like if i had a patient tell me about abuse they sustained in childhood i would say that you know what an asshole that's really horrible and painful and you know fuck that guy kind of thing um that because that might be helpful for them to know that it's okay to be angry and there's a lot of it's not cut and dried like that because there's a lot of different factors to take into consideration. Like I would probably want to ask a couple questions just to see how my patient feels about it and like if they're maybe in love with their abuser because that's very common. I don't want to invalidate that or help make them feel any more shame, and so I wouldn't maybe respond in a very aggressive manner, but I may express some anger, frustration, excitement. I find excitement to be really difficult for people as well. And that's one thing that I will show in session. Like one of my patients when she graduated from college, she like struggled to be proud and excited. And so I showed her what I was feeling. And it was a a really healthy way for her to maybe acknowledge that she did kind of feel that, but that feeling was scary. And then we dug into why that was. And well, then something bad's gonna happen because every time I felt excited in my life, if something something bad, you know. Anyway, so I think that we can use that definitely as a therapeutic tool. So long story short, it is definitely not inappropriate, but it should have some therapeutic value. And also just as always, everyone's gonna be different Some people might not want their therapist to show any emotion. They might want more of that blank slate, that kind of what I would call older school type of therapy technique. It's not that it's old school and debunked and isn't effective, it's just a different way of doing therapy. And every therapist is going to be different. And so I love that you can communicate it and voice it to your therapist, whether you want it or not, or stop doing that, or yes, it's helpful. That's what's really important. And if you find a therapist, I mean, therapy is just like any other relationship, like if it's not working out and you just don't feel like you like the way they interact with you, it's okay to find someone else too, okay? And there was a comment on this and it says, yes, and if they say something like, that's not okay when you share what someone said to you or how they manipulated you, is the therapist genuinely angry as she appears or just overdoing it to show me that it's really not okay and I should maybe feel angry or at least feel something about it? I would assume your therapist is genuinely angry. I know it's a different type of relationship and it's it's strange. We might be more I might show an emotion more outwardly than maybe I would normally. Does that make sense? Like I might be frustrated and be like and I'll stomp my foot or something? And that would be the end of it. But if I was talking with a patient about it, I might describe it more vocally so they know kind of what I'm experiencing. You know what I mean? Like I feel the muscles tense and I want to stop my foot. And that son of a bitch, right? Like and cussing always makes me feel better when I'm really mad. Like I might walk them through that. And so it might be more, not overdoing it, but more descriptive or more visible than it might be if it wasn't done in the in a therapy session. Does that make sense? But I believe that if a therapist does express some kind of feeling that they're genuinely feeling it and they're allowing themselves to express it because it's helpful. They think it might be helpful for you. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, how do you deal with a traumatic sexual experience that wasn't rape or abuse? Years ago, my last relationship ended after my at-the-time boyfriend was sleeping with me and breaking up right afterwards, like literally right after finishing. He admitted that he only used me for sex, but since I gave my consent, I don't believe it's right to call it rape or abuse. Neither do I. Ever since, I'm terrified of intimacy and avoided at all costs. That makes sense. The few times I've had sex since, I completely dissociated and felt miserable afterwards. Now, the comments on this question were kind of interesting to me. And and I agree that it was not rape or abuse. Um, although it could have been abusive if he had coerced you or manipulated you into having sex with him. Now, I don't have any details to that effect here. So just the fact that he was essentially a shitty boyfriend that was using you doesn't constitute, you know, rape or abuse necessarily. I'd have to have a little bit more information before we try to make that decision but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what matters is your response to it and how you felt about it and it's very common when we experience pain right because this you know he was a dickwad and he used you and that feeling afterwards had to be horrible because especially if you loved him or maybe thought he was the one, right? We dream a dream of what our relationship could be when we're in them, and then for it to end so abruptly, boom, is is horrible. And it can be really hard, and the grief and the pain and even the shame because you're feeling used, and maybe I'm the problem, blah, blah, blah. All the shit talking we do to ourselves during a breakup is going to be hard. And because of all that, I think that's why you're avoiding intimacy at all costs because you're like, well, intimacy led to that experience, and that was fucking terrible. And so, of course, you're going to want to avoid it. But if we get into therapy and we start processing maybe some of the things that we learned from that relationship, some of the red flags maybe we didn't notice right away, and most importantly, noticing our self-talk about ourselves in relationships and in our world, if we can build up a more confident, a more self-assured Us, I think we can, we'll feel so much better. I know, obviously, easier said than done. It's going to take some time, but I don't think we need to call it rape or abuse. Like I said, I'd need more information, but I don't think we'd have to call it either of those things for you to feel the way you feel. We don't, again, it's kind of that judgment that we have around like, what's a trauma? Has to be this big T trauma. Something must happen to me, or I don't have a right to feel how I feel. And I'm here to tell you that this guy was a dickwad, and that's what I would just focus on. This guy's an asshole. And a bad person. That's all it had to happen for me to feel the way I feel. I was used, and I'm hurt by that. And I'm trying to process through it. And that's really where we're at. And you can process through it. You can go on to have healthy, happy, loving relationships with you know healthy sex life and intimacy, and you feel okay. It just is going to take a little bit of time to heal from that wound. What happened to you was horrible. We have you know loss of relationships is hard, and it's definite you know, it could definitely be constitute a little t trauma. Now, when I say little t, does that mean it's like, you know, not as big of a deal? No, I'm just telling you that we don't have to pretend it has to have a certain name or has to be this this level to affect us. A little t trauma is just as painful as a big t trauma. We have every right to get help and support as we work through it and heal from what happened. Okay, moving on to question number six. This question says, What changes do you think could be made to adult psych wards for treatment to be more effective and for a better experience? Oh my God, I got the list is endless. I know that sometimes I need the extra support, but my times at the psych ward in the past have been extremely traumatic. And now I can't ever see myself going back voluntarily. I came out of the hospital worse than when I went in and I did everything I was supposed to do because I wanted to get out as soon as possible. It felt like jail. I hear that a lot. And you guys know how much I hate psych wards for that. If you're just listening, I just put my chapstick on. That's why you heard this now. Um I don't like hospitalizations in psych wards for this very reason. Now, I think the changes that need to be made are, there needs to be levels. And the thing, so unfortunately, but fortunately, I've worked in hospitals. I worked in multiple hospitals. I used to work for uh, this chain of hospitals called Prime Healthcare. They owned a bunch of hospitals in uh, Southern California and other parts of uh, the states. Anyway, it's a huge like conglomerate of hospitals. And the problem is that there's just one psych ward. And I really believe that there should be levels. But here's what I was going to say is that there's not a ton of space in hospitals for things like this, and like psych wards and ERs even don't make a ton of money for the hospital. What actually makes money for the hospitals, like surgeries, especially like elective surgeries. Unfortunately, hospitals are businesses to some extent, and so because of the way mental health is just like slowly, people are becoming more aware, and the treatment is becoming better and better hospitals, I feel like just haven't caught up with that yet. Meaning that we just put, if people need hospitalization, they're all pushed together. So it's like, I, if I'm feeling kind of suicidal or having a hard time, am going to be put with someone who maybe they don't know if they're detoxing from a drug, but they're like hallucinating. They think they're floridly psychotic and possibly dangerous. Like we're all going to be placed into the same psych ward. Now, yes, if someone's dangerous, they're going to put them in like a locked room and stuff like that. But I'm just telling you that like everybody goes into the same bucket and I can't tell you how many of my eating disorder patients have had to be hospitalized and they're put in the psych ward and it's more like they just had these passive suicidal thoughts and needed or needed help with like, you know, be, eating more regular. I don't even know. There's all sorts of reasons we could go to the hospital. I had a patient who felt himself going into mania and out of safety because he's had other instances where he had done some things that put him in high risk for injury um his mom was like i want to put him in the hospital and so she did and i don't like he was in there with people you know it's like he should be there with people who are dealing with similar things like i feel like there just needs to be levels because like psychosis is one thing that's happening and people do need safe and secure help but then below that, there might be like more of the suicidal patients and people who are having a hard time that way. Then there might be like drug detox or, or things that we think might be related to, you know, some kind of substance. And then maybe there's, you know, I feel like it just, we need to have some levels. And what that necessarily would look like might just be like breaking psych wards into chunks. But I, I can tell you this, there are not enough beds already in hospitals. I can't imagine them wanting to add more, but I would love it if we had like a whole floor. It was all a psych ward and having a bunch of different rooms and then there'd be different activities and different levels of things that you can do for groups because one thing working in the hospitals that i recognized and i realized really quickly is because of the differing levels of functionality i couldn't get much accomplished in groups and then my patients who were higher functioning just needing a little extra support for a few days found the groups to be just completely useless but meanwhile you know i'm trying to operate a group for like all these different levels of functionality in patients. And that's just not how mental health help is ever. It's never done that way, like any other place other than a hospital like that. If you were to run a group as a clinician, I've ran many groups. Um, one of the women, Jamie Roberts, who I ran an anxiety group with years ago, she just reached out. She has a book coming out. And when I get it, I will share with you. But um, we ran an anxiety group for a while. And we tried to pick people for it that were like kind of in the same level of functioning so that, you know, you meet people where they're at. And same goes for my eating disorder groups I've run over the years and my DBT groups. Like you try to put them together with people who are in a similar level so that the homework and the pace of the group is good and beneficial for all. Otherwise, it's like, you know, it'd be like um, in a hospital you coming in for a sprained ankle are getting the same amount of care as someone who has come in because they broke their back. Right? It just doesn't make any sense. And some for some reason, mental health care just has not caught up to physical health care and the ways that we now know we need to treat it. I'm getting way off, you guys. I could really talk about this. But I think levels would be really helpful and super, super beneficial. And also just pulling back on the, I don't know why hospitals always tend to if from my okay I'm not a doctor so I know this opinion like take it with a grain of salt but I feel like it's just too much medication I feel like a lot of my patients come out of the hospital like a zombie and I know people need to be kept safe and that's like I can't tell you that's like one of the the number one thing when you're in a hospital is like you're checking on patients every 20 minutes you have to go into the room you're like you know say hi to them if you can sometimes you try to ask them do like a mini mental exam where you ask them like if they know where they are what year it is and blah 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 we're doing that all the time. And so I get that safety and security are paramount. And so they're like, well, if they're a little more sedated, that's fine. But I feel like that doesn't, that's not really therapeutic either. And for my patients, they say that they just didn't even feel like themselves. And then the like hangover effect of coming out is just too bad. So I think, you know, being a little bit more careful with medication, if psychiatrists could spend more time with my patients in the hospital, Oh, that'd be amazing. If there could be levels to treatment, I would love that. And I also don't really like the fact that it's I understand the 72-hour hold like need to be held I don't think there should be like this minimum I feel like the law should be changed where lean on the staff and assessments that we could offer and then people can leave like I think that feeling like a jail is part of the traumatizing component of it and also enough with the white walls. Can we like get a little color in a hospital here and there? One hospital I was in had like teal walls. That was kind of better-ish. But anyway, those are just some of my thoughts. I could clearly talk about this forever. And I could also get into like the business side of it and why why things kind of are the way they are. But you know, that's like a whole another. it's a podcast in and of itself. Now there was a comment on this and it said, also, can you talk about the lack of treatment for COVID positive patients in psych wards? I went a few weeks ago and was held in the waiting room for 14 hours that's not appropriate alone because of COVID and then spent three days in a bed at the ER because there are only three facilities in Ohio that accept COVID positive patients. Healthcare workers are definitely overworked and underappreciated and most of them are probably burnt out understandably and this has definitely taken a toll on the quality of care that people receive. It's sad to see and sad to experience. I can't, first of all, I didn't realize this. I just want to be honest. I didn't even consider the covid ramifications of mental health treatment i know in general we didn't have any protocols in place when it comes to if you guys don't know like when you're in different states and even i mean federally but also at the state level in in the u.s obviously is all i can speak to but there are different accreditations you can receive as a clinic like hospitals clinics you can get you can be i forget what it's called it's like j something like you're getting your J accreditation and there's different levels. And when you get those accreditations or you you follow those rules, you know, for lack of a better term, then you can accept other insurances or get paid out at these different levels or have other patients from different places be able to come to where you are. And it means you're holding your care to this certain standard, right? And so we didn't have anything in place for a pandemic and they should have, and there should have been, you know, A couple of beds up in the psych ward that they were able to like bubble off in some fashion so that you're not stuck in the ER. That's really unfortunate. And yes, I know our healthcare workers are burnt out, underappreciated, overworked. Even my cousin, who's a physician's assistant, and she does surgeries that's for on the arm. She was telling me how everybody's super agitated and like she gets yelled at, you know, almost every day she's in the office dealing with people and like they had to reschedule surgeries because of COVID protocols and they get mad at her and she's like, I'm just doing my best and like it's so stressful and it's hard and it's hard for everybody. We're all stressed still and I'm just sorry you went through that. And I hope that because of this, they're putting in some protocols and some better ways to manage so that COVID patients aren't just locked into this one area because, you know, like even if you're not there for your COVID, right? Like you were there because you needed mental health support, but you just happened to be COVID like positive. So you're like, well, now what? And I'm not even getting any support. And there needs to be some way to better manage that. And hopefully this is, you know, lesson learned. Okay, question number seven says, hey, Katie, I recently expressed suicidal ideation in therapy, and my therapist said to me that she isn't worried about me because I haven't tried to kill myself to date. What? They said that to you straight up? Okay. I'm feeling so hurt and invalidated by this. Uh, Yeah, that's not. Mm-mm. Also, since I'm very attached to my therapist, all I want is for her to care and worry about me like a mother would, understandably so. And I feel... Like the only way to get enough love and care and support and attention for her would be if I tried to kill myself. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. We'll get into this. I'm struggling to move past this comment and struggling to open up to her now because I feel like she won't take me seriously. That's fair. It is completely fueling my suicidal ideation. And I did bring it up with her and asked her why she said that. And she said just because she's human. We're not perfect. I'll give her that. I have no idea what to do. I'm feeling awful about it. Can you please tell me your thoughts? Love from Melbourne. First of all, I'm really sorry that you had that horribly invalidating statement. And therapists are human. The thing that I don't like is that it doesn't sound like she apologized. Yeah, it doesn't sound like she apologized. That's what bothers me. Because therapists are, we're not perfect. We're human too. We're going to say things and do things that aren't therapeutic, could hurt your feelings, might be detrimental. We should apologize. We should acknowledge. And even if we didn't think it was something that was going to be offensive at all, It doesn't matter if a patient felt offended, then we need to apologize. That's just how be that's part of being a therapist, you know, fortunate or unfortunately. And so overall, she should have apologized. Now, here comes the part where you have to do your work. You're going to have to challenge these thoughts or at the very least distract from them. Because her one comment that she's saying, like, I'm human, essentially saying I fucked up and I'm sorry, but she should have said that straight. So I wish that happened, but that doesn't mean that you get permission to harm yourself or that if you did harm yourself, that that would mean you'd get this attention that you're craving. And what I would really encourage you to say to her, if you can, muster up the courage, tell her what's coming up for you. It's not so much about what she said. Let's just be honest. It's not about that. It's about this pattern that you've probably had in your life where someone, probably your mom or other caretakers, dad, grandma, aunt, I don't know, didn't give you the support and attention. They were potentially abusive overtly through physical or sexual abuse, but also might have been emotionally abusive through emotional neglect, or maybe even just yelling at you all the time. I have no idea. But whatever the story back, your backstory there is being played out here for you and you're taking this one comment and because it's super triggering it's like it just jumped right into that one spot poked that button you're like oh and it you went zero to a hundred and we need to tell our therapist that that is happening this was the trigger and this is where my brain goes and my best advice if you're able again we gotta we gotta fight because it's your life and your work and this is where i really encourage you to just to push through through the discomfort let her know this is what's happening. And what I really want to do is I want to figure out why. You might already know, but I really want you to, to spend time with her digging into this overreaction. And I think you've heard me, guys. You've say, I've said this in the past, but I want to say it again here. The term overreaction is not a judgment. The term overreaction is useful in therapy because it means, hey, this is a red flag. I'm reacting to this way more than the actual situation warrants. Why is that? right? This overreaction is is actually really helpful. It's indicating to me that something else is going on and that's why I'm having this freak out, right? We need to stop using that term as a way of judging people. We all overreact. It tells us something else is going on. It could be anything from, I haven't taken care of my basic needs, right? Didn't eat, haven't slept well, so I overreacted. Or this instance where my therapist made this offhand comment, Brought me back to being a child when I would cry for my mother and she wouldn't come to my aid, or when she'd tell me I was too sensitive or overreacting all the time. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? It brought me right back there. And so now I feel like, in order to get any love and attention that I so deeply crave, right? Because we're, I'm assuming there's a lot of inner child work you're going to have to do, but we're needing that so much that. It just sent us back there, and now we want to do something in order to get that attention. But I'm here to tell you that's not going to get you the attention or the love that you need and deserve. We can do better. We can tell our therapist about it. We can let her know we're having this overreaction and we wanna understand why. Because all the things that my hypothesis might be wrong, everybody's situation's different. And so digging into that with her, I believe by you sharing this and pushing through and trying to understand better why, will help you be less reactive in the future and also help you better understand yourself. And I think there's something about understanding the patterns of our life and the things that have happened that can be not only like aha, like oh my God moments, but it can also be extremely validating. Because then we're like, oh, I'm not just making this up and being difficult. Like my life fucking, that sucked. That whole situation sucked. And that's why I have this problem, right? And sometimes we need that validation. You know, it's like if your foot hurts and you go to the doctor and they're like, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. And then you go to a different doctor and they're like, oh, you have this small bone that's broken in here. We can reset that and it takes the pain away. You're like, praise Jesus. I thought I was losing my mind, right? We need that validation. So let your therapist walk with you as you find those little broken bones that maybe we've been ignoring and trying to like cover up with other relationships. And I could really get into that, but I hope that at least my thought process or the conversation on that was helpful. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, Hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, thanks all. Of, oh, thanks for all that you do for all of us. Of course. My question is, do some therapists slash psychiatrists use proper medical words and lingos? We do. I don't do it with my patients, but I do it with other therapists and psychiatrists or psychologists. So my therapist has told her a few times that I don't know the logical definitions to those proper medical words and lingos. I don't know if I should call it medical words and lingos. I know what you mean though. It's like using proper terminology and you don't it's like words you don't know what they mean. Cause it's like what 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 my editor tells me when I write my book, sometimes like that's an insider baseball word. Find a different way to say it. So thank you, Dan. That's very helpful. And that's what you mean by this, this medical words and lingos. Insider Baseball it says, and I've told her it, conf- oh, I've told her that it confuses me and I get frustrated at times, but not always. But I still don't understand the logical meanings when I look up the words on my dictionary app that I have on my phone, because you're not supposed to have to do that. My question is to you, do you use lingo like some therapists and psychiatrists use? Have a wonderful week, Katie. Of course, you have a wonderful week too. No, I do not. Um, as much as I can help it, I... I pride myself in taking very complicated terms and uh, subjects and breaking them down in such a way that it's digestible for the average Joe Schmo. And I say Joe Schmo because I want anybody out there who has no history of going to school for any psychology or health field of any kind to be able to watch one of my videos or listen to one of my podcasts and be like, ah. I get it because that's language that I understand. I think there is there is something nice to having uh, you know these medical terms. It can help in communications with other medical professionals to ensure that there's no miscommunication or misunderstanding. And I also understand some people have you know a broader vernacular they're pulling from. So people their people's language, like even Sean has a, a much much more. I don't even know again I don't even know the word <laughs> pun so punny Um, but he just Sean has a, a better grasp on the English language I feel and his length I feel like the words that he knows and utilizes regularly are like above me right it's like Shh, I don't get that and so I try with the work that I do, and even with my patients, I try to use language that is in the middle so that almost everybody can understand it. And if someone has a question, I can explain it in an even simpler manner. Because we're, especially when it comes to health content, it can be really confusing. Like there, I never took anatomy and physiology because that's when I realized I wasn't going to become a psychiatrist. Don't know if you guys know that. Uh, Saw the syllabus, sat in one class and was like, absolutely not. Can't make it. So some of us have taken AMP and we know all the veins and the tendons and the muscles and the bones and the names of everything. And we can talk about it. Or like when it comes to mental health, some people can talk about all the different parts of the brain and why it lights certain things up. It might not be helpful if we don't have the context and I don't even know what, you know, the hippocampus, what the fuck does that mean, right? You can't use those terms. So I really shy away from that. The only time I use that is when I'm talking to other mental health, you know, clinicians, whether it's a psychiatrist, psychologist, other social workers or therapists. I only use that lingo when I know that I'm talking to another professional. Other than that, I always with my patients use just like basic English terms. And I always tell them if something doesn't make sense, ask me because sometimes I'll think that a word is like a normal, like this is a common term. Uh, come to find out it's really not. you know. And Sean's even caught me on some of those things when I'm filming videos. He's like, no one knows what that means, Katie. That's another therapist word. And I'm like, oh, so there are slip ups. We're not perfect. But I would encourage you to, I know you've already tried and your therapist has tried, but there's no shame when you're with your psychiatrist to say, I don't know what that word means. Could you explain that to me in common language? That's the word. That's the way I would phrase it. Explain it to me in common language. Because we can, as professionals, and all of you are professionals, and just hear me out here for a second, we can get so used to the acronyms and the terms that we use in our area of expertise. Even if you work in a fast food restaurant or a Starbucks, you're going to have terms you use. Like, I, hey, I was a barista for many moons. There's terms you use that other people wouldn't know because it's it's your specialty and you know the terms related to your work. Therapist, psychiatrists, psychologists, we're no different. And so we all have these expertise. But when we talk to someone else outside of that sphere, we cannot use those same words. And so it's okay to say to your psychiatrist, could you please put that in common terms? I've tried to Google it. I don't know what that means. Or if you feel okay, and if she if she pushes back or forgets or isn't very open to that, it's okay to write the tell her to write it down. Can you write down what that is? And then take it to your therapist and have her kind of decode it or ask me, you know, um, I'm sorry they're doing that. I hate when people do that. It not only does it personally, not only do I feel stupid when stuff like that happens, but then I also feel like I'm not sure if it's correct because I can't fact check it because I don't know what it means. You know what I mean? I'm like, is that a right diagnosis? Is that a side effect? I don't even know what to do with that information. And it's so frustrating. So I'm very sorry that you're dealing with that. And hopefully we can come to, you know, a better way of getting you the information that you need about your treatment. Okay, final question, question number nine. says, hey Katie, can you please talk a little bit about borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as BPD. I have suffered for many years. I think it's the most misunderstood mental illness, I agree. I have therapy weekly and I work hard and I've also been in and out of the hospital over the years. I'm 53, is there an optimistic future ahead or is this the best that it gets? This is not the best that it gets. There is an optimistic future. I cannot recommend dialectical behavior therapy or dbt enough it sounds like you might i don't know if you've been in dbt groups but that's my what i would encourage you to invest in the most i know that it sounds uncomfortable not everybody wants to be in group but finding a therapist who does dbt and having a group at the same time in my experience if that's available in your area again i know it's not available for all but i'm giving you like best case scenario that is where we make the most lasting change. Because the thing about BPD that's really key for everybody is relationships. Now, there's a whole component, a whole pillar of BPD called interpersonal effectiveness, which really means how I relate to other people effectively without, you know, splitting or uh doing the like cut and run, I call it, or, you know, anyways, manipulation, things that we can do being really impulsive in our relationships. Those are things we can do as um, be people who struggle with BPD, right? And so if we're doing those things, of course, our relationships are going to be difficult and group is a great place to try those things out. I used to run one at the eating disorder treatment center I worked at down in Long Beach for many years. And I think that's where I saw the most change in my patients. And then there used to be a couple going in LA, um, but the thing that's really cool about COVID, one silver lining is that there might be some online that you can access. And that would be beautiful. I feel like if anybody out there does DBT and has time to run a group, now would be a great time to do it. And maybe that's something I look into doing in the future, but I'd need another person to do it with me. Anyway, I'll put that in my brain to think about it for later. But I just want you to know the treatment is effective. DBT is the most effective. Uh, Medication for some of my patients, again, I'm not a doctor, but medication has been shown to be beneficial. Um, Sometimes a SSRI or an atypical in combination. I've even had a patient on a mood stabilizer that was helpful for her. So really it just depends on you, Um, but it sounds like you've got a full treatment team. So talking to them about it, if that's a potential option, but DBT is really where it's at. Dialectical Behavior Therapy. And if you go to my Amazon shop, go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You can see all of the DBT books that I utilize. There's a full on, the green book, it's McKay and someone else, I'm forgetting the other person's name, but anyway, it's the Dialectical and Behavior Therapy Workbook. It's really really helpful and the other ones like worksheets and stuff that i use with my patients a lot um over the years so but that green book i think would be really helpful anyway it does get better i know it's a lot of fucking work and it's exhausting but once you get some tools and some that's why dbt is so helpful once you have some things you can do instead of letting the bpd run the show you'll feel so much better that's where the real change happens. That's where we start to be, feel like we're, there's something so powerful, I don't know how to explain it, but with my BPD patients, there's sometimes this like click where all of a sudden they're like, it doesn't mean that we don't have shitty days and we don't want to act in certain ways. There's sometimes this click where it's like my patients all of a sudden realize that they have control over their emotions and their reactions and that they can respond thoughtfully. And I've seen it over and over where all of a sudden they're like, oh, Oh, and it's like, it, it's empowering, it, it's freeing, because there's something about BPD that those who don't fully understand it or don't have it themselves just don't get is how uncomfortable it is. Imagine feeling every emotional slight, like times a thousand and always thinking the worst about yourself. And then when you kind of feel a little bit better, you make really impulsive decisions that sometimes don't turn out very well. And then you go through the shame spiral again. And then all this hate and anger and frustration just builds up inside of us. And that's why self-injury is so common and suicidal thoughts and attempts. And it's just so fucking uncomfortable. And so having those tools to help us better get a handle and, and to have something else that we can do is... Uh, amazing. And so check that out. Ask your therapist about it. See if we can get you into a group and therapy at the same time. Usually the group will go once a week and then you have therapy once or twice a week. Um, Again, maybe it's online, but I think that that would really be the most beneficial and potentially medication also. Like I said, it hasn't worked for all of my patients, but it's been pretty beneficial for a lot of them. So something to consider as well. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for leaving your wonderful reviews and your questions and just everything. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you so much for watching and listening and I will see you next week. Bye. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Katie.